Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> I like the description of uh, the church being called uh, a faith family. Uh, it just reminds us that we interact with each other. We don't just gather as a religious group, but we share our lives together. Uh, we pray for one another. We support one another. Um, whether this is the, the first Sunday you're worshiping on earth without your mom on earth, knowing that she's worshiping at Jesus' feet and supporting her. Whether we're praying for each other as somebody tries to fix a car or somebody's going through other health problems um, or, or just the other challenges that we go through in our lives. I like that phrase, uh, faith family, because we get to interact in this next week. All the uh, people going on the, the Widow's Harvest mission trip will we'll just be laughing like every 10 minutes, right? Um, and um, sharing with each other, but also some very serious times as well where we visit with each other, catch up with each other on what's going on in our lives, and, and also uh, minister uh, to a widow. Uh, we'll be ministering to one particular widow next week is the plan, uh, who just needs general repairs in her home. Um, and so we look forward to just catching you up uh, next week very briefly on, on what, what, what transpired. Well, today we're going to continue in a, a beautiful passage, uh, Deuteronomy 4. This is our, our third sermon on Deuteronomy 4. In a, a series that I'm preaching through this entire year, whenever I'm preaching a few times, called Never Leave the Basics. Knowing that, yes, we're supposed to be established in the basics for sure, but we are also never to leave the basics. And while the book of Hebrews challenges us to, to grow in our faith, I believe it tells us to make sure we never leave these basics. Basics such as meditating through Psalm 23, praying the Lord's Prayer, and here being reminded of the Ten Commandments. All right. Being reminded of the Ten Commandments as a foundation for knowing what is right and what is wrong. Would you pray with me? Lord, today we are going to be reminded that we are called to worship you as our creator. Today we'll be reminded to have no other gods before you. I pray this would be true, certainly in our church, in our faith family, but on a day-to-day -day basis in each of our individual lives. Lord, I pray today that as we conclude some thoughts on the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 4, before the Ten Commandments, that we would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. We would grow in our convictions. And we would be convicted and grow to be convicted even in our convictions with more clarity, with more faith, with more boldness, being able then to teach others and instruct others. I pray that our beliefs would be sure as we entrust our souls to you, our covenant-keeping creator God. Amen. I've certainly enjoyed studying Deuteronomy 4, and one of the themes that we've said is that, it's, that the Ten Commandments are there to remind us that we don't meet God's requirements. And we're humbled by, by who God is in light of who we are. As that song said, two things I consider my worth and my unworthiness at the same time. 
What a beautiful capturing of the gospel. And I hope we are growing in our convictions around the Ten Commandments and God's law and growing in our knowledge. Um, I myself was very much firmed up in the belief that God gave the Ten Commandments to them verbally before he gave it to them in writing. I don't know, how did I miss that? How is that not something that I had stored as a child um, just in my memory banks? We always focus on Moses coming down with the written part, but it's very important you see in this entire chapter 4 of them reminding that they were given to it, that it was given to them in a verbal way first. So I want to start today by asking you a question. The question is very simple. Which God do you worship? And how would you answer that question? There's probably a variety of answers. The one true God, the God of the Bible, Jesus, the Trinity. The most basic answer, the most helpful answer that the church has had since the Apostles' Creed is the maker of the heavens and the earth. Which God do you worship? The maker of the heavens and the earth. And the Apostles' Creed is directed at the Father, but no doubt the Trinity, our triune God, is all involved in creation, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So which God do you worship? Well, we worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. But Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 through 40, doesn't just put it so simply. It answers that question and it kind of exposits that answer. What does it mean that we worship the one true God? What does it mean that we worship the God of the Christian Bible? What does it mean that we worship our Creator? Would you follow along as I read Deuteronomy 4, 32 through 40, that answers this question, that exposits for us the first of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 through 40, he says, For ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the day that God created man on earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself in the midst of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, war, a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror? all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. Now on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath and there is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. 
This question of which God do you worship and the answer to it is not just an issue of knowledge and having the right answer. Though it's certainly helpful to have the truthful answer. It's not just an apologetics question. But it is, in fact, the answer today for the greatest pain that you are going through in life. We read from 2 Peter First Peter chapter 4, and it talked about suffering. It said, don't be surprised at that suffering that you go through. Don't be surprised at a test that comes upon you. And we should certainly not fail the test when it comes, though every day we are called to renew our minds with a daily test. We should not be like the Israelites who on their day of testing in the desert instead turn the test on God. Hebrews reminds us of that. We should not be surprised at tests that come our way. The daily test to die to your flesh. But we should indeed share in Christ's sufferings as a Christian. As a Christian. Suffering is part of this life. And he says this strange verse here. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Meaning that if we go through trials and judgments here on earth as Christians, what on earth will become of those who don't know God? Imagine their trials on earth and ultimately on judgment day. And so we are called to suffer as a believer. He says in verse 19, of 1 Peter 4, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to, doesn't say God. It describes God as our faithful creator. And this means something to us as we go through our sufferings. That we are called to do good, it says, entrusting our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. Why is creation good? Why was it created good? Because God made it. And on that sixth day, he called man very good. And so one of the foundational things in knowing which God we worship as a core basic is to have no other gods before me. Which God do I worship? Yes, I worship the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that means I know that God is good and so I can trust him. This is a first foundational basic thing that we never leave. And how often do we question God on a daily basis for big things or little things? Do we pause long enough to ask ourselves those questions? What are the idols in my heart where I'm questioning God, where I'm trying to share the throne in my heart with Christ? It will not be shared. And so here in verse 32, we, we see that God created man on earth. And just before we're giving, given this, this covenant and the Ten Commandments, a, a re-giving of the, of the Ten Commandments, a reinterpretation of the law, Deuteronomy meaning a second giving of the law, they're about to go over into the promised land. God doesn't just give them the Ten Commandments in a list format. Deuteronomy 5 is Deuteronomy 5. It's not Deuteronomy 1. God doesn't start out with it. He leads up to it. He leads up to it 
reminding them that he is their creator. That I am a different God. I'm the only God. I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth. And that is significant. But tied with that in the previous verse, in verse 31, is another very key term that we don't want to miss in the midst of God giving the Ten Commandments. And that is the word covenant. And so we have these two things combined right here in verse 31 and 32, covenant and creator. Foundational basics of the faith. But we dig deep into those basics and we understand what covenant means. So I want to do a a brief review with you of covenant. Because it's important for us to see that we're in the old covenant here, but we read it as new covenant Christians. Remembering that God has given us this old covenant so that we would know that we don't meet God's requirements, that we would call out to him so we would recognize beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are sinners. So reviewing covenant, God wants them to keep in mind that he is a covenant-keeping God. We can look back to Adam. And though the word covenant isn't used in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the contents of it are there. What is a covenant? Well, in its most basic format, most basic definition, it's an agreement, obviously, between two parties, okay, two people. And it involves a promise, and it involves a partnership. Now, you hear partnership, and too often we think 50-50, right? That's not the case with God's covenant. You see, when God makes a covenant, he's the initiator of it. He is the term setter of it. And ultimately, in the new covenant, he meets the requirements of the agreement. But in Adam, in Genesis 3, we see God making a covenant with Adam after the fall and making a promise. The first promise of the gospel found in Genesis 315, he's actually talking to the snake, but certainly Adam is listening to it. It's revelation to us, letting us know that there will be a struggle between Satan and the offspring of the woman. But that in that struggle, there will be victory through the offspring of a woman in who? In Christ. And that offspring, Jesus Christ, the seed, will crush the head of of Satan representing sin. God is making a promise. And then right after that pronouncement of the curse in Genesis 3, what does God do? There's a sacrifice that's made with an animal. And so associated with these covenants is an animal sacrifice. And in this particular covenant with Adam, who makes that sacrifice? God does it. He's the one that kills an animal to cover them because they have shame in their nakedness and they recognize it. What's special about this covenant is that God has made the sacrifice, not a priest, not a man priest, pointing ultimately to the new covenant where God also makes that sacrifice and is even also the sacrifice himself in Christ. There's also... A partnership. What is Adam still called to do? He is still called to obey God, most certainly, and he is certainly called to be fruitful and to multiply. We could go on to Noah and see the covenant that God made with Noah. 
and the promise that he would never do what again? Never flood the earth again. Never bring judgment worldwide with a flood. But inerrant in that promise is a promise, is a certainty that there will be judgment again one day. At the end of time, there will be judgment, and it will come by fire. And God partners with Noah to build a big ark and to be the human and the herald of righteousness that preserves God's people in that instance. And Noah does what afterwards? He makes a burnt offering unto the Lord. You could then come to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are often quoted together and referred to together in the Scriptures. Knowing that in, in Genesis 12 and 15, God made a promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. First through Israel, and then ultimately through all nations in the New Covenant. You see an animal sacrifice there in Genesis 15. And this sort of partnership where through Abraham's seed, there would be a nation that comes, and ultimately Christ would come. And we say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob changing his name ultimately to Israel. Where his sons through Joseph being in Egypt for 430 years, fulfilled that promise made to Abraham, where it was said in Genesis 15 that your descendants will be in a land for about 400 years, where God will make them into a great nation. This is all that's been built up to this point where now the law of Moses is being given. Where there is a temple for them to worship, which points to the true temple. Where there is a sacrificial system that doesn't ultimately pay for sin, but it points to Christ as the true sacrificial lamb. Where God brings his people out of Egypt with a Passover lamb, pointing ultimately to Christ, who is our true Passover lamb. Where the law is given to God's people, they're asked to keep it, but they can't. In fact, in between the giving of the verbal law on Mount Sinai and Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, giving them the Ten Commandments in writing, what, what seems to be happening? It seems that in between those two times, that's when the people led by Aaron are worshiping one of the idols from Egypt and that golden calf. So they're just not doing well. So in the midst of God giving them the law, it's just obvious they can't keep it. Ultimately, we find that in the New Covenant, that there is a son of David, as God had made his, his covenant with King David, saying, you will have a son who sits on my throne forever. In the immediate context, that is Solomon, but ultimately, that is Christ, who meets the requirements of God's law for us. Paul tells us this in Galatians 3. He tells us that there was a law that is given 430 years after God made a covenant with, with, uh, with Abraham. And yes, there was a sign with that covenant, the sign of circumcision. That's not, not all that God required. He required them to keep the law. And why did God give them the law, Paul says? 
In Romans, I'm sorry, in Galatians 3.19, he says, What then is the purpose of the law? He answers it and he says, It was added because of transgression. Until the seed, the offspring that was promised in Genesis 3.15 with the covenant God made with Adam should come to whom the promise had been made. This is what we talked about in 2 Corinthians 3. What is the law? It's a ministry of what? Condemnation. But what is the ministry of the new covenant? The ministry of righteousness. Paul adds in Romans 5.20 that the law was added that transgressions may increase, that we might see beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are indeed sinners. That we are indeed sinners. Luther described the law's purpose this way. What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments specifically? He said it's like a stick that beats you up until you come to Christ, and then it's like a walking stick. Isn't that a beautiful description of it? Am I guilty? Yes. Do I confess that guilt? Do I not keep the Ten Commandments every day and every week of my life? Yes. But it's a walking stick that God has still required us to stay on that narrow path and to to do right, to do justice, to look after widows and orphans and to be a loving church body. Let me summarize it for us this way. In the New Covenant, God meets 100% of the requirements of that covenant. But by faith, He still requires obedience to the law. Because right and wrong, still right and wrong. Jesus summarized it by saying, love God and love man. Jesus was very concerned with our interpretation of the law as his first public sermon is all about interpreting the law. Let me repeat it again. In the New Covenant, God meets 100% of those requirements by faith in Him. And He still requires us to have obedience to the law. Ultimately, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, it's called the law of love knowing that Christ laid down His life for us, that He met the requirements. He is the one who kept the moral law and all those Ten Commandments. So He is in my stead, moving my spiritual bank account from an eternal negative, ultimately to an eternal positive, with Him keeping it for me. And so we come to this text, starting in verse 32, knowing that before we come to the Ten Commandments, that God is our covenant-keeping God. Knowing that the covenant is from our Creator God and that the covenant becomes, that that God has made with His people called the, the Old Covenant, now called the New Covenant, becomes more and more clear as time moves on. As we saw and we journeyed through going from Adam all the way to Christ. And in fact, even the law becomes more and more clear as it is first of all written on our hearts, but it's a little bit muddy, a little bit different than what I think is right and what you think is right sometimes. But we come to the law of God and it's in writing and it's clear. And then Christ models it for us in His life. And so we start out by asking, 
to ask. Verse 32, it says, ask now. Are you seeking God? Are you seeking his kingdom first and foremost before everything else? Are you seeking after God? This is another way of saying, watch yourself carefully. Take care and keep your soul diligently and listen to God's word. Are you asking the right questions? And are we going to the Bible for those answers? Because God's word gives us the right answers, the all-sufficient answers. But the Bible isn't a philosophy book that just gives you answers. It's not just information. The need of our questions is met in Christ, who is our comfort and our supply. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. And the Ten Commandments are not just here to tell you to keep them, but to tell you that Christ has kept them for you. but that I am still called towards obedience out of response to asking and seeking after God. Why did Jesus teach in parables? So that if you were just walking by and listening to Jesus, he didn't want you to hear the gospel. He wanted you to hear the gospel when you stopped long enough to talk to him. To not just try to get some sort of fire insurance because I just want to get to heaven, but to say, no, I'm actually in love with Christ. And that's why I want to get to heaven, is to be with him. And after that comes everything else. Just like Matthew 6.33 says, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Are we asking, are we taking time away from this world, which you have to fight for tooth and nail? And after you're done fighting, to fight more. And to fight first and foremost by resting from your own works, and observing the Sabbath principle in our own lives. Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments? So ask now of the days that are past, which are before you, since the day that God created man on earth. And ask this question in verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? This question that's being asked in verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire and live? Is not the first time we see that in the Scriptures. Yes, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, but it is not God who speaks those first words. God is simply here giving back to the people what they've already said. In Deuteronomy 5, the second half of the chapter where we have the Ten Commandments, there's a reminder of what the people had said. Deuteronomy 5, 26, it's a reminder of what the people said to God. It says, Deuteronomy 5, 26, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Who is saying that? The people of Israel. Why are they saying that? Why did they say that back in Exodus 20 area 40 years ago? Because they had to concentrate themselves for two days and listen to God establishing his covenant, reestablishing his covenant with his people at Mount Sinai, here called Mount Horeb, in a verbal form. And they didn't want to hear it. They said, Moses, you go up, you talk to God, and come back and tell us what he said. You be our mediator. We'll do it. We will do it. And God's like, oh, 
In verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments. They recognized in that moment, God is holy, I am not. I am called to fear God. God said, oh, that they had such a heart always to do this. So when God says this in verse 33 of chapter 4, did any ever a people hear the voice of God? He's just telling them what they already said. They are reminded here of their experience of the living and holy God. They're also reminded of his grace. The very fact that no other people has experienced that. No other nation has God sought out like Israel as he promised to Abraham. And here you find a beautiful demonstration of what is more strongly taught in the New Testament, and that is God's sovereign election and his salvation, which we find in the words in the Bible such as election, predestination, and choosing. I sometimes talk to people who don't believe in that, and I metaphorically give, hand them a pair of scissors, and I'm saying, well, why don't you just take those, those verses in your Bible and just cut them out, because you don't believe them, right? They're, they're words in the Bible, are they not? <clears throat> well, people don't like being told what to do. And sometimes you can interpret that in a light sense, saying, well, God chose Israel, he chose that nation, God chose the church, he knew ahead of time of who those people would be, and, and that's okay if, if you're there. You don't have to believe in God's sovereign election in order to become a Christian. It's not one of the tenets of, of evangelism. Okay, But it is something that we grow into. And, and here it, it's almost a basic that we submit to. That we don't understand God's sovereign electing grace. How he has chosen one nation and not another. How even within that nation he has chosen certain people. As Paul says, not all of Israel is Israel. I had a friend once who was really struggling with understanding how God would would choose certain people before the foundation of time and not choose others. For him, he was finally won over to submitting to God's word as it says in Deuteronomy 7, actually. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, is an illustration of what he already believed. What do we call God's people in the Old Testament? God's chosen people. And everybody says that without even blinking. So they do already believe in God's sovereign election. And it carries through to individuals as well. But listen to this strong words in Deuteronomy 7. Notice that we're not in Romans. We're in Deuteronomy 7. Verse 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, that is set apart and pure, belonging to the one true God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people in the world in the, that the Lord has set his love on you. He chose you for you were the fewest of the peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and kept the promise that he made to your fathers, that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you see here, very much connected to God's sovereign choosing is his love. And we certainly don't understand it. 
This is the book of truth, but this is not the book of life where it has the names written down in it. We don't know whose names are there. Only one you can know is yours beyond the shadow of a doubt. And in fact, the scriptures don't give us those names. Again, because it's not the book of life. Though it would be obvious that somebody like Paul and Peter would be in heaven, the Bible doesn't give us specific names. So it's obvious that there are some people who would have gone to hell as well. But you know what it says about Judas? In Acts, when they were trying to decide by lot who to, who to replace him, they don't say to replace Judas who went to hell. They say Judas who went to the place where he was destined to go. And as you read Hebrews, it talks about God's people in the desert. And that, that's just a curious question. What happened to that generation that died? Seems a little unclear. Well, it's none of my business, sort of, is it? Between them and God. But in Hebrews, it says, it describes that generation as saying that their bodies fell in the desert. Why does it say that? Because it's not telling us where their souls ultimately went. But they died physically in the desert. That was their consequence. Now, it seems obvious that God's sovereign election is still in place. I would think that somebody like Aaron would have repented of some of his sins. But there are some who God just, just, just killed it with plagues. And so God is building up here. Moses is building up here to the Ten Commandments, reminding them that he is a covenant-keeping God, a creating God who loves his people. And it's all of grace. It's because of the promises that were given to you. And how did he save them? He saved them by trials, by signs and wonders by war, by a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm. These signs and wonders are important because it's the qualification for a true prophet, somebody who does signs and wonders. Deuteronomy 18 tells us to look for a true prophet, the prophet who is ultimately Christ. Did he perform signs and wonders? This is why so many were so confused by him, because they saw the miracles that he was performing. but they were looking for a conquering king, not just a suffering servant at that time. But God has also saved Israel by all these things here in the immediate context. Certainly, what are their signs and wonders? Being saved out of Egypt with those ten plagues. Even eleven, if you count God, killing the most powerful army in the time, Pharaoh's army, simply by drowning God fought for them with a mighty hand, with great deeds of terror that the Lord God did for you. Again, going back to our Creator being good. Do you believe He's doing it for your good and for His glory? Is that a basic that we hold on to? And the time to ask that is before you go into a trial. And where did He do that for them? He did that for them in Egypt a place where there were idols, a place where the Passover would have been established and started as part of the Old Covenant, which is a pointing to the New Covenant, where Christ is that New Covenant sacrificial lamb. But ultimately, he saved them out of Egypt, which is a place of slavery. Again, representing being saved in our own souls, even in our own bodies, 
from sin. This is what God has saved us from. There's no doubt we need to be thankful, number one, for our salvation, which is the only guarantee we have in life. But we will recall the deeds that God has done in our body. We will recall the things that God has done in our lives. And to you it was shown, God's people, that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Building up to have no other gods before me. Do not worship the gods that you are familiar with. The little g gods that you are too familiar with. Again, we don't just go to that saying, yes, I'm all good, I worship God all the time. No, we go to that saying, Lord, please forgive me this week for not putting you first. When we come as a faith family, we enjoy our time of worship. We enjoy the sermon. We also enjoy the prayer that is made every week. Where we are led by the hand of somebody up here and by the Spirit of God to confess our sins before the Lord and to ask Him to look after our needs. Verse 36, in a continual recalling of how much God has done for them, out of heaven He let you hear His voice, that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire. And you heard his words out of the fire. They experienced God on Mount Sinai and they prepared themselves for two days prior. They heard the voice of God. This was a big deal. They heard his voice. They experienced God. They saw the fire and they heard his words. Notice the connection there to not just an experience, but words. And again, how does John start out his first letter? He's reminding them that he has seen Jesus. That he has heard him, that he has touched him. Knowing that they did not see God the Father on Mount Sinai. But we, humanity, has seen Jesus. And we have his words. We hear his voice because we are his shepherd. And he loved them in verse 37. His election, his choosing of them, his providing for them is because he loved them. For our good and for his glory. He loved them by bringing them out of Egypt, by hearing their cries, by fulfilling his promise to Abraham that after 430 years, His people would be birthed out of a nation that is not their own, but they would become their own nation of probably over a million people being blessed by God, even being blessed by their enemies. And God leads them out with His own presence and His own power. With a cloud by day and a fiery pillar by night to lead them for those 40 years even as Christ has promised in His great commission to be with us always. Even in the Psalms, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because He is with us. But in His presence, in hearing His voice, it says in verse 36 that He disciplines them. I think this has two things in mind. First is that they are to live by the rule of discipline given in the Ten Commandments. This isn't just something 
to post somewhere, but it's something to live by and to meditate by. But God also disciplined His people when He gave them manna instead of bread. We're familiar with that passage because when Jesus was in the desert for 40 days with perfect obedience, replacing Israel, who for 40 years did not have perfect obedience, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 to the devil. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's an interesting passage in Deuteronomy 8 where God says he gave them manna and not bread so that he would discipline them. They were asking for bread. They were complaining. But God didn't give them bread. He still provided for them. He still gave them their supplies. But it wasn't bread. It wasn't what they expected. And it says he did that, that he would discipline them. Yet Christ in the desert didn't even have manna. He truly lived by every word that came from the mouth of God. And there in Deuteronomy 8, it says that God disciplines those he loves. Because he's a loving God and because he's good. And so we trust him. And we trust that the discipline of the Ten Commandments is good for us. That is an incredible hump to get over of faith. To say, not that I have to keep them, but that I want to. But God loved his people, and in verse 38, he drove out other nations that were greater and mightier than themselves. And have you ever been in circumstances where there was no way out, where you have had a great need, and God provides? Ultimately, of course, this is dealing with our sin condition, where our throats are open graves, and our hearts consistently put idols on the throne of our heart. God solves those problems for us in Christ and provides for his people. And so he says in verse 35, to know today, that is every day, and especially today as God is renewing the covenant with them, to lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath, and there is no other. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.35 recognized that God does as he pleases with all the powers of heaven and all the peoples of earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Do we acknowledge continually only God having no other gods before him? As you read Ezekiel, this is the theme in Ezekiel, starting in chapter 5 and 6, almost every chapter has in it that they will know that I am the Lord. Why is that in there? As the people are in Babylon, they have failed. It's only the remnant that's left. Most of Israel has been destroyed and killed. There's only a few left, comparatively. He wants them to know beyond the shadow of a doubt, even in your discipline of being in Babylon and Persia for 70 years, that theme over and over and again in Ezekiel, that I am the Lord. And do we acknowledge that in our lives? And then we build up to verse 40, which we've been building up for a long time, is this word, therefore. Because I have loved you, because I am your creator and your covenant-keeping God, therefore you shall keep my statutes and commandments. God doesn't just come out of the gate with Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. There's time building up to him where he led his people out of Israel over the course of at least a year, 
or has been making promises for hundreds of years. I am that God who loves you. I am the one who has a relationship with you. I am the one who has a future for you and a new covenant in Christ. Therefore, keep my statutes that it may go well with you. For your children after you, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you for a full time. For all time. That's familiar, isn't it? Paul picks up on this in Ephesians, saying, Children, obey your parents, because it's the first commandment with a promise, being that you would live long. And while it's certainly true of the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, it's actually true of all the commandments. And you see this pattern of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience in our lives. Ultimately, Christ became that curse for us. And there's a pattern here I want us to, to notice. And that is, before God gives us law, He shows us that He loves us. And before God can begin to give us grace, He gives us law. So the pattern goes like this. There's a relationship that's established. There's law that is given, and then there is grace. And you see this pattern throughout the Scriptures. And you see it right here in this odd passage in verse 41 where there's a city of refuge. Seems kind of misplaced. The city of refuge, there were six of them in Israel, three on each side of the river. So that you could flee to that if you were in some sort of trouble, not for belligerent, intentional sin, as much as for accidental, involuntary manslaughter. For your trial to be completed. Or for relationships to be restored, because after some horrific accidents, you just sometimes just can't exist together. We're humans. So there needed time to pass. And so we have these cities of refuge being mentioned that even in the Ten Commandments, right afterwards, right before the Ten Commandments, that is, there's some grace that is built into it. I want you to, to listen to uh, John chapter 1. We're familiar with John starting out about in the beginning was the Word. But we also need to keep in mind what he says in verses 14 through 18 where he says the law was given through who? Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, but who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Connecting that theme, what He said in 1 John, and He says elsewhere in John 4 or 5, No one has ever seen God, but how do we see God? We see God when we look at the Son, and we experience the triune God in that way. Though the law was given to Moses, it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I want you to see this pattern of relationship, law, or now we're calling it truth, and then grace in Jesus' life. Jesus did not just show up for six hours and die on the cross. He did not just show up for three and a half years and have a ministry and then die on the cross. What did He do? He had a relationship with humanity by becoming a man for 30 years first. By being tempted in every way, just as every teenager is tempted. Just as every human is tempted. He established a relationship. He laid down truth in his teaching ministry. And then he gave us grace. 
And he kept his mouth shut at his trial. It won't be like, like that forever. He will come back as the conquering king. He will come back as the judge. And so we need to have a relationship with him. We need to submit to his truth, even the truth found in the Ten Commandments. And then to experience his saving grace where Jesus has kept those Ten Commandments for me, even though at the same time he is asking me to follow him in obedience by faith. And I want us to conclude by looking at Deuteronomy 5.6. And Deuteronomy 5.6 is simply a summary of Deuteronomy 4. Chapter 5, verse 6 is only summarizing all that we've been through in chapter 4. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Have no idols. And he goes into the Ten Commandments. Why should we obey God? Yes, he is our covenant-keeping God. He is our creator. And he has demonstrated he's not only our creator, he is our sustainer. And he has called us, indeed, even to partner with him and to be his ambassadors. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the signs and wonders that you have shown to your people. We thank you, Lord, for the signs and wonders of Christ, who established that he truly is the Messiah. We thank you for all the truths that are taught in the scriptures. We thank you that you show us that you love us over and over and over again. That as you give us your truths, you have built grace even into your creation by giving us a day of rest. But ultimately, Lord, we know that that is so that we would rest in Christ, the one who has credited my spiritual bank account with the perfect life of Christ. May we walk in it this week and be drawn closer to you in knowledge and depth of insight and conviction in our heart of hearts for knowing that you are God and there is no other. Amen.